Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Today's guest had a childhood that many would never understand, but today she is using that experience to help others. Crystal Lynn is executive director of anti-trafficking at One More Child, as well as a licensed mental health therapist. She spends her days standing beside survivors of trafficking as they overcome obstacles to build dream-worthy lives. Today, Krista shares her experience as a second-generation trafficking survivor in hopes that lives of exploited children, teens, and young adults will be changed. Today's guest is Krista Lynn. She is the Executive Director of Anti-Trafficking at One More Child, as well as a licensed mental health therapist. Krista, your life leading up to this success wasn't all that easy. Tell us a little bit about what happened during your childhood. My childhood started off with extreme childhood trauma. Um, my mom was a teenage sex trafficking victim on the streets of Virginia. Um, you know, growing up, she didn't, obviously we didn't have those terms yet, and so she would have referred to herself as a teenage prostitute. Um, I wish she were alive today and I would share with her that there's no such thing and that she was a sex trafficking victim. My father um, picked her up. She was um, working the streets of Virginia as a teenager, strung out on heroin, and he picked her up, took her home, and, um, you know, got her clean off heroin, and they very quickly had a child and got, or got pregnant, and then had my older sister, um, all while my mom was still a teenager, and then came me um, two years later. By that time, the damage from my mom's childhood trauma history of sexual abuse and then being trafficked for sex, um, you know, she was um, just suffering immensely, and she took off with us two kids and would go on to, um, we believe, be trafficked again with us two um, toddlers in tow. There's no way to go back and, and prove those things, but as the stories go, we were in and out of hotels with lots of different boyfriends and um, just lots of people, and it just sounds like, trafficking situations for what we know today. Um, She would then go on to um, get out of that and marry a stepfather. And, um, you know, our most stable years still included severe alcoholism and drug addiction. And then at 12, they would divorce, maybe 11, they would divorce when I was about 11. And our life just took another turn. I would say my mom's drug addiction increased, her mental illness increased. Um, you know, she was in and out of institutions for um, depression and suicidal thoughts and feelings and, um, and attempts. And then from there, um, that left us very vulnerable as children. It's no surprise at 13, I would be raped for the first time. And by... 15, I had already left the home multiple times. Um, I would be uh, have a boyfriend who convinced me that I could come to his house for safe housing, and when I got there, he took everything I own and began exploiting me, um, both for sex and labor. Um, it lasted about two and a half months that I was held at his house, and then I was able to escape. Um, But again, just like my mom's story, by that point, the damage was done. And, you know, between the whole life and just zero support in life, um, you know, I always look back and say I think the most tragic thing was not just that it happened, 
that if you can picture coming home and that no, your life was set up in such a way that there wasn't even anyone looking for me. There was no one thinking she's missing. Wasn't there anybody in your life that was no. looking out for you? Nobody. Um, my mom at that point, and, and things are so much better today with the Department of Children and Families, but, um, you know, the way we were raised, and again, a lot of this is stories passed down, um, the way we were raised was when we were young, you would always, my mom would be running from DCF or the equivalent in whatever, you know, state. And, um, and we were in custody from DCF as children for maybe just a few days when we were in Florida when we were very young. But back then, you could really avoid having your kids taken by taking off. And so we just grew up in a culture where everything was about not being taken by DCF. Well, by the time we were teenagers, no longer, and, and this is the beautiful part, this has changed today. Department of Children and Families in Florida and worldwide is doing much better at seeing teenagers as children and, and bringing them into care and not criminalizing. But back when mm -hmm. I was 13, you know, it becomes this battle where the parent is trying not to catch a neglect charge. And so the parent of of trauma who's, you know, raising a kid like me has zero incentive to look for me or get me help because they're trying to show that I ran away so that they don't catch a charge. Well, I always said I, it's unfair and I don't like the term runaway. I don't, you know, there's plenty of kids who do run away, but there's a lot of us who I never once ran away from the home. I was kicked out over and over again. But after you're kicked out, with a drug addict parent, they're very scared of the legal consequences of that. So then it almost becomes this battle with the system where the incentive of the parent is not to find you. My mom really did the best she could to love us children. So this is not some wicked woman. This is a woman with severe trauma, severe drug addiction. And in those moments, she had culturally been taught to see a 13, 14, and 15-year-old as an adult because that's what happened to her. And so her incentive to help find me and, and face, you know, why was I not living at home and then was she trying to bring me back when she really couldn't handle me, and I would say that's on both her and me by that point. Um, childhood trauma breeds aggression in both her and myself, and so I – you know, think it was just a complicated time in history, and we've gotten a little better. It's not that much better worldwide. You know, you have a trauma mom and a trauma child and all these complications, and when we go missing, if the parents aren't leading the way to find us and the school, you know, isn't trying, and back then the school saw me as a delinquent. They saw me as someone who, um, you know, was making these choices, and so even when I did come back um, willingly, because I reached back out from a payphone back then, and, um, you know, my mom did find me in a room in an adult house to live in. And so you're almost like just being adult, you know, turned into the adult world. And I went back to the school to get back into school, um, was still 15 but getting ready to turn 16. And, you know, everything is a punitive matter, like I, I'm i in trouble. Nobody once at the school asked where I was. Nobody asked what happened to me. Um, everything about the whole system is like 
you're the one choosing this. And today at One More Child Anti-Trafficking, one of the things we work extremely hard is to educate the public that these are not choices our teenagers are making and that, yes, they're going to come back into care with high levels of aggression, and that is common for complex trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder and childhood trauma, and that we have to do better, not just of looking for them and letting me know, letting them know we're going to search for you over and over, but of compassionately asking what happened when they come back. And, you know, we're, we're not there yet as a society worldwide. We have a, a lot of work to do in that way. Um, we're still in many um, states in the United States, many countries worldwide, we are still treating them like delinquent youth. And I think a lot of people, they assume people working in um, the sex industry, they choose to be there and they're adult women. What's the reality? Absolutely. Well, and the reality is, um, like myself, by the time we're 18, you know, our chance at an education has been stolen from us. Our chance at the life skills necessary to function healthy, living in a community have been stolen from us. Our chance at the emotional regulation necessary to maintain, you know, most jobs that would earn a livable wage that are outside of sex work has been stolen from us. Like, we do not have those skills. Our development has been affected. Um, You know, trauma just permeates every area of our life. And so we really, and I've now worked with just hundreds and hundreds of of young adults and older adults who are in adult sex work, and um, I cannot think of any who don't have severe childhood trauma. I, I believe there's one or two. And I've met one or two who I didn't work with who say that. I would want to get to know them better before um, sharing that as fact. But of the ones I've gotten to know, never met any of us who don't have some severe childhood trauma that happens first. And so we might be adults appearing to choose this, even verbally saying we choose this. But it's not a choice when all of our life choices were stolen from us, when we weren't given the skills to function and the emotional development to um, handle adult life. You're a survivor. You've managed to overcome all of this. How did you get out of that world and come out on the other side and be able to help others? Absolutely. That's a great question. I love sharing. Um, so much older than than I think is necessary. Um, and again, at One More Child Anti-Trafficking, we strive to make stories like mine happen every day, but happen um, preventatively or, you know, right when they're still teenagers. In my instance, um, I lived many years in a, in a deep drug culture. I was um, addicted to heroin, to crystal meth, um, just IV. Um, it's an intravenous drug user for years. And at 26, I would get pregnant. Um, I was out in California. And, um, you know, I would say a few things before that had happened that um, I had tried to get off heroin once a couple years before and just had a moment where I went from being an atheist to thinking, is there a God? Hmm. And so that was like a critical piece. Um, and then I had met um, in actually a nightclub that I worked. Um, they had Christian band night, and um, I had met a 
person in a Christian band who, um, just talking to him even, you know, for that brief period, he did not get to share the gospel with me, but I noticed something was different. And I would be, like, living strung out on the beaches and, and see him every once in a while, and there was a compassion and a kindness that I would say struck me. So you have, you know, the instance where I'm thinking, is there a God? And then I meet this Christian and thinking this guy is, I think, if I can remember correctly, the first guy who's not trying um, to either make me his girlfriend or use me, you know, exploit me in some way. And so fast forward to I get pregnant um, with someone I've known and, and, you know, who had tried to save my life multiple times over 12 years, and um, and I had run back to him with severe drug addiction multiple times. And in an effort to save me, which culturally is common in the drug world, he thought, and, and I agreed, like maybe having a baby will help. Um, it's unfair to children. It did not fix me, as we know. It doesn't actually work that way. Um, it did spark the first hope in me, and I would say until that point, um, I had severe attachment problems to humans in general, um, and all of a sudden I have this baby inside of me, and I have this belief that maybe there's a God, and I'm no longer atheist, and I'm thinking, okay, like, is there another way to raise this child? And at that point, I'd never known a mother who did not at least smoke pot and drink alcohol during pregnancy, so I really had not seen anything other than this world that I come from. Um, I had been to church sometimes with that stepfather has a younger girl, but was just in such severe trauma that I don't remember, even though we had moments where my mom and that stepfather would go to different churches. Um, there just nothing had stuck and made me think, oh, that's the answer. But I'm sitting here and I'm pregnant and I'm like, what am I going to do? Is there another way? Um, the father, um, who's a very, very good friend and just an amazing guy today, um, we come back to Florida together, and I reach out actually to that stepfather, who now is a Christ follower, and um, he does really try to share about God, and I um, end up having my daughter, and after I have my daughter, I go right back into severe drug addiction, but while on um, opiates and, you know, just large amounts of pills, and now I'm shooting up um, opiates, I end up going to church a few times with her. Again, um, you're not hearing much because I was high, but I think the desire of is there another way is, like, starting to build. And then fast forward two years later, I've now brought her in and out of drug houses and um, am really setting her up to be a third-generation trafficking victim, like mm -hmm. in every single way I am repeating what my mother brought me into. Um, but for God, um, I was arrested for stealing a car, and while sitting in the jail cell that night, I um, had my mom, who was still a severe drug addict, knew enough about addiction to convince my daughter's father. And um, and that was very hard for him. He had been used to rescuing me for, again, you know, 12 years at that time. And she convinced him, or maybe 10 years at that time, she convinced him to not get me out. And he um, was strong and left me in there that night. And I just remember all of a sudden as the drugs were wearing off and um, I was angry 
and had zero care or concern, honestly, for anyone and was just bitter and angry. And then all of a sudden, and I say the beginning to tell you this wasn't for me. I was not crying out to God. I wasn't honestly concerned about getting out of jail. I had never been that afraid of jail. I had always um, grown up in such a culture where you you just know it's coming and you accept it and you're not, like, living in fear of it. And so all I honestly wanted that night was a cigarette, and I was willing to wreak havoc on him to threaten his life, anything, to make him get me out so I could smoke a cigarette. I was selfish. I was um, just highly, highly aggressive and cared about no one but myself. And and then all I can say is people praying for me, that now I know that stepfather was praying, that was my grandmother praying, and it was like, you know, what you hear biblically, that repentance fell over me. Um, it was thoughts that when I woke up in the morning, I knew were beyond my maturity or understanding. I just threw up my hands, like, and cried out in my heart, like, silently, but in my heart, like, God, if you want this mess of a life, you can have it, and just show me how to live, and um, it makes me so scary. I woke up the next morning with a peace that's truly beyond my understanding, and if you understand um, withdrawals from drug addiction, that doesn't make sense. Um I should have had anything but peace, and yet I just had this peace, and I just knew I have to figure out who God is, and that's what I have to do right now. And um, at that same time that I'm going through this in that jail cell, um, you're in a holding cell until you get moved, so they bring to you, like, papers if you have to go to court for anything. And um, her dad had filed an injunction to have my parental rights terminated, and so I get the paper and, again, should be, like, distraught. And I just knew, like, figure out who God is and, and you will bless her life. And it, it was, like, for the first time, this unselfish thought. I did not necessarily think I was getting her back. I didn't think even that was possible. At this point, I had done so many things to set her up to be that third-generation drug addict and trafficking victim. I wasn't, like please let me have her back. I was having this unselfish moment of just let my God, let my life make a difference to her life, God. Like do something that makes a difference. And um, I sat in jail, I don't know, maybe um, a little less than two months from there and started playing what I call the opposite game because I was like, I clearly have no idea what God would want for my life. Like what in the world would that be? So I started saying, well, every choice I've ever made in life is destructive, either destroys other people or destroys myself. So I'm going to do the opposite of everything I think is wise. And so because of that, I was faced with choices of, like, stay in jail and try to get probation or um, go to a short-term program locally so I could be near my daughter or go to a long-term program out of town. Well, when I looked at all my choices, I was like, let's pick the one that is the complete opposite of what I would want to do, which obviously is a long-term program out of town. And so I chose a long-term program out of town and went there with just one thought, like, I'm just going to say yes to God. Like, when I know what God is saying, I'm going to figure it out, and I'm going to say yes to God. And you would say, like, the Holy Spirit was already working on me in those two months. Um, it was beautiful just to see how... God's transformation starts. And then I get to this program and, um, you know, you're just 
ready. And, and it was hard to not be with my daughter. It was heartbreaking to have left her. Um, you know, my daughter's father, who I say, you know, in so many ways, God just used him to save my life, to save her life. But he also was someone who, who was in the drug world at a much lighter level and followed me around as my enabler for 10 to 12 years. And, um, and when I left, he was, she was in his care and grandparents' care, and, um, and he turned to drugs. And, you know, I think he felt lost and didn't know what to do when I no longer was the focus of his world of keeping me alive and safe. Um, it was heart-wrenching to realize I'm away. So none of this was easy. Like, you know, my daughter went through a lot. Um, I can share today that I was at that program a year I came home, and um, her father and his beautiful wife, who's my daughter's stepmom now, they're both sober and free from drugs. Um, the grandmother who helped care for her is like a mother to me. We are all extremely close. Um, you know, it's a beautiful redemption story in every way. I came home and joined a body of believers at a local church, and um you know, they had no idea the world I came from. They had no idea how to help me. And, and there was a lot of things that led to the work I do of what um, communities in general need to do so much better, but the heart was there. That church had a heart to know me and figure out how to help me in this, this then three-year-old that I brought there. How can the church uh, do better at combating uh, trafficking and helping people coming out of trafficking? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, they can listen to podcasts and radio interviews and, and like this, and they can um, just take time out of their schedules to continually learn. And I say even more than learn, the reason, I mean, we learn in lots of different formats, but on you learn one time something like what is trafficking, what are the vulnerabilities, what that's not as helpful to what we need communities to do to be ready to stand beside us. We need them to engage in ongoing willingness to learn. My my good friend calls it and she was a past she is a pastor's wife who was one of my first best friends when I came home and still is a best friend. And she calls it jump being willing to jump in people's puddle. And you do that by engaging and time out of your busy schedule to listen to radio shows like this regularly so that it's fresh in your mind, so that you're just having this heart that God's molding, that compassionately is learning tidbits in bite-sized pieces that, that the brain can handle. Because my world and mainstream America, and I would say this worldwide, whether you're in Canada or any other country, Countries have a mainstream culture, and then they have the outskirts. And what I see as as a failure that needs to change in most mainstream cultures, no matter which country we're in, is that people in the mainstream culture think that there must be some level of commonality between them and the way um, people in severe childhood trauma grew up. And while that can be true, that is not always or even often true and when communities start to understand like we're not coming into this community just needing help from drug addiction or sex trafficking or being an adult sex worker after 
life of childhood trauma. Almost everything about the way we grew up, the way we perceive relationships and understand the world and have time management and the ability to learn and, and have a job, everything has been affected. What we need more than people called to help, like One More Child Anti-Trafficking, we need us, for sure. We need the clinicians. We need the advocates. We need the survivor mentors. What we really need is community members who are, you know, managers at jobs and sitting in the local Bible studies who just have compassion because they're engaging in continuing learning so that when a girl like I was at 29 or I was 30 at the time, and, and ideally, again, much younger, walks through the door and has the visible signs that trauma can leave. By that point, I had demonic tattoos covering my neck. So I walk into a mainstream church, and, um, you know, I have these demonic tattoos covering my neck. Um, I personally have been taught to dress now like mainstream um, society, but often you're not. If I hadn't gone to rehab for a year, I wouldn't have known how to dress. I would have this scary look to me, and we need you just to not have thoughts of why does she look like that, what, what's wrong. Because if you're ongoing learning and listening to radio shows like this, ideally, and I believe this is true, the first thought will be, praise God you just walked in this door. I just heard a story on the radio about a girl like this. I'm so happy you're here inappropriately dressed with demonic tattoos that scare me. And, and I will tell you, that's what we need more than anything else. We need safe communities where the first thought in your head is, praise God, I get to meet you, not what's wrong. From being trafficked and coming out of childhood trauma, many of us, we are experts at reading people. So it doesn't matter if we can teach you the right words to welcome us. If your first thought is fear or that we're so different looking or that you're not sure what to do or whatever, we read that before any of your words get a chance to welcome us. And so, again, like ongoing engaging where you're thinking about the world of a childhood trauma victim, of a trafficking victim, it will change you to the depth. And God uses that to just have this compassion exude from your body language, your tone of voice, your words, and, and we need communities willing to do that. We have um, something called the Traffic Stop Action Network that's a Facebook Live monthly group that's about 20 minutes. It brings in different survivor leaders and experts and talks about subjects like this. You can go on Facebook to join at Traffic Stop Action Network. It is one of the best ways just to keep um, that heart of compassion growing. Krista, you've managed to overcome some really tragic and traumatic stuff. And, and now you're using that to help others. What would you say is the most amazing part about that? I would say, um, like, mothering, getting to be a mom. Um, you know, I think that it's just one of our greatest gifts in life, our children. And so for me, um, getting to be my daughter's mother and that that gift was not taken from me, um, getting to... Think of a legacy of love and compassion and Christ followers for her. Um, that's been so beautiful. And then secondly, to use that gift that I've been given to parent her, and, and she's 19 now, and she's at um, you know a, a Christian school, and she's in a college church group and just thriving in that. 
getting to use that miracle of her life that it can be done and then to use that expert personal experience plus becoming a licensed therapist and then leading anti-trafficking organizations, just getting to take that and help us um, worldwide to increase our services, increase our understanding of trafficking. Like, it's a critical time in humanity where we're starting to understand these aren't choices that teenagers or children or adults are making. I feel so grateful to be a part of the changes that have been made over the last 10 years, the changes that are to come, and and just seeing safe communities be built. Um, You know, we have over 105 active cases, and, and I personally get to train worldwide. When I go to another country and get to help them further along their services and help us as a world see that we have a vested interest to come together, every nation, and, and help fight trafficking, that this is a world problem. And, you know, sadly, our trafficking victims worldwide have more in common with each other than they do with mainstream society in their own countries. And so we need worldwide to come together and help increase awareness and just fight this um, head on. And to be a part of that has been the greatest joy of my life, to be with one more child and, you know, know that I'm with someone who everything we do is about providing Christ-centered services to children and families and to be leading our anti-trafficking efforts in, in doing that and know that, um, you know, we're just every single day we're learning new things and we're putting it into action and we're helping build safe communities. Krista, for people who want to learn more about what you're doing and more about One More Child, how do they go about doing that? Okay, the one is the Traffic Stop Action Network. Um, it, it, again, is this extremely tangible, monumental way to have to build that heart of compassion. You go on Facebook and, and just type in Traffic Stop Action Network. Um, you can do it from anywhere that you are, Canada, United States, anywhere. The second way is financial gifts are extremely needed for us to um, expand our services and expand our awareness efforts. Um, We're always welcoming and would love to talk more to people about that, or you can go to onemorechild.org to donate online or ask questions. And then, you know, we travel worldwide and provide trainings on childhood trauma and just the the crossover and the connection to sex trafficking and vulnerabilities of exploitation. And if any of your listeners have opportunities to bring us in and connect us with law enforcement or the healthcare system or um, the school system or any community, um, churches, the body of Christ, um, you know, that's, again, one of the most important ways is, is coming together and helping people to just have this issue right in front of them so they can join the fight through educating themselves. Krista, thanks so much for joining us today. Remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation, you can always do that by visiting your radio station's website. We'll talk to you again on Connections.